This is a production from The Companion. Sci-fi served fresh. I'm Brad Wright, co-creator of all those Stargate television shows and creator of Travelers on Netflix, which is a show you should watch if you haven't seen it yet. You're listening to my podcast, Conversations in Sci-Fi, a production from The Companion. Welcome to my interview with my friend and multi-franchise television star, Ben Browder. Ben had the difficult job of stepping into a starring role within a long-established ensemble, and I was always impressed with how well he fit in right away. In this episode, we'll discuss everything from aircraft to acting, back to aircraft, from Farscape to Stargate, and we'll even get to hear from some of you. From The Companion, this is my conversation in sci-fi with Ben Browder. One of the last times I saw you was leaving the Continuum set after shooting a 14-hour day. You got into your car and drove back to L.A. I did. Straight. It's worse than that. Okay, so it was a 14-hour day. We wrapped at 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. And I got in my car and started driving at 6.30. Yeah. And I drove straight through to Los Angeles because my uh, because my son had a youth football game, and he didn't want to miss it. Yeah, and uh, and in the intervening time, uh, Stargate got we did Universe, and uh, and then Stargate went away for a long time, and and then uh, when we spoke uh, more recently, I, I hinted to you that I'm trying to get another one going, another Stargate going with MGM. Yeah, and I, I, I just, I, there's nothing's happened yet because COVID put a big uh, hole in Los Angeles, as you may well know. There's, a giant, of, there's a giant crater. <laughs> <laughs> I drove, I drove over the hill because I, I live kind of valley side. I drove over yeah. the hill, and it, it's, it's just a big smoking hole. No, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's. We had plans that have been uh, slowed. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But it was fun typing uh, Mitchell again, I have to say. Oh, well, good. I'm glad, I'm glad he exists uh, on, yeah. on paper, at least. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> totally, at least that. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, I mean, uh, nothing, there's no, absolutely no guarantee that anything I've written will, will even happen. But, uh, but it was fun to do, and it's, it's fun to play in that sandbox again. Yeah, well, you know, we can, uh, we can, we can get a whole bunch of people together and uh, do a Zoom call. Yeah. I wonder if we could do that. That's not a that bad would be, idea. I would, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd pay money probably to do it just to see <laughs> Mike and Amanda and, and, and Rick and whoever else yeah, is, yeah. shows up. Let, let's not tell MGM that Ben would pay money to do this. That's probably a bad idea. Oh, that's a lie anyway, but I just hope that Mike and Amanda hear that I would pay money to see them. That's what, yeah, I, that's, that's what I'm that's hoping nice. for. That's yeah. fair. That's totally fair. I wanted to I wanted to bring up another thing too because the last time we we connected more recently had nothing to do with Stargate it had it had to do with the fact that your son joined the Air Force and is now playing Colonel Cameron Mitchell in real life. He's actually he's better than Cameron yet. Mitchell. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's 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 better than Mitchell because he uh he's actually um heading off to his B course to fly the F-22 Raptor. Unbelievable. Which, which is a spaceship. It's a real life spaceship. I, I've, I've watched 
like YouTube videos. I knew about it anyway, because when, when you and I went down and, and flew with the Thunderbirds. To Nellis our, Air Force Base. Got our, F, got our F-16 on, uh, which, of course, kind of let both of us know, I think, that we picked the wrong profession. <laughs> wrong life yeah. choices. We made bad life choices when we were young yeah. people because there may be nothing more fun than going straight vertical off the runway and then dropping upside down and seeing Vegas from that perspective. Over Vegas. And that was pretty we're doing fun. everything that an F-16 can do. Well, the F-22, good Lord, son, that, that thing, that thing can fly supersonic without afterburn. There's only two planes in history that can do that. It's amazing. We saw them on the runway. We, uh, we did. If you recall, uh, Nellis. And I, and I remember saying, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I would approve that visual effect, meaning it didn't look real. It looked so, so like a spaceship and, and they is, were shiny. It, it, is, it is a spaceship. And, uh, and, 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 you know, Cameron Mitchell Jr. is going to be flying one. So that's so cool. That is so cool. How he backed into that. I, I, you know, it's, uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing journey. Well, the other thing is I, you, you, you reached out even when he went into the Academy and said, yes. Look what I did. You did. I, I, I did because <laughs> because I knew that we had that that shared groove on for uh, that kind of aviation. And well, who all do you the share things that, that we I mean, how many do. people do you know that that jazz on that as much as like you and I do? We'd rather talk about that than almost anything other than maybe your golf game. <laughs> well, you don't. You're bored to, to, to tears with that. But I got in continuum. I got how jazzed I am. I mean, we both got to sit. You got to actually do dialogue. <laughs> uh, I had one line, but I was I was the uh, I was the guy in the other plane when when uh, in continuum when we went up when you guys went out to save the world, and yeah, I sat in that cockpit. Yeah, yeah, it was an F fifteen Strike Eagle uh, provided by not the Air Force but the National Guard uh, uh, through the Air Force, uh, and. Uh, and they, they, that, that was the great association that Stargate had. I mean, we got to fly in F-16s. We got to sit in F-15s while we filmed all around the cockpit and had all that beauty. Yeah. Talk about an expensive prop. And then you got to go with the Navy to the Arctic. Yes. And I didn't make it. It was so sad. I never did hear your excuse. What was your oh, excuse? Oh, we, we, like, I was flying up. I was flying up for just uh, the day, apparently, that the, the submarine was going to rise through the ice. And I was going to, I was flying with the admiral of the whole base that the submarine was from. And we were on our way up. And just as we were coming down to make our landing in Dead Horse before we got on the small plane that took you guys out to the uh, Arctic ice, yeah. uh, there was a wind shear warning and the plane swerved big time and, and, then it, and then took off again. And the admiral looked at me and said, That's, we're not landing in Dead Horse. <laughs> And so it, he was right. We went back to Anchorage and the Admiral said, I, I can't go tomorrow. I, I, have a, I have to be in Washington the day after that. So there's just no way I can do it. And I went and talked to the woman at the counter and said, I, I, I guess I need to know where my luggage is so I can go back to the hotel for the night because we were told the plane was going to take off the next day. It, it took off like almost immediately. It just went, okay, we can go again. And everybody else who stayed at the gate, I followed the Admiral to the, to the, the other gate to find, and stupidly, and when, when I went back, the plane was gone, so I couldn't go. <laughs> it just, they just left you there. Pretty much. With my luggage, they took off, too. So I didn't even know where my luggage was, and, and they didn't know either. So I couldn't even hang around Anchorage. I didn't even have a bag to sleep overnight in Anchorage. So I had no choice but to get on a plane and come home. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a wallet. I didn't have my car keys. 
So, so let me get this straight. Yeah. I get to go 300 miles offshore onto the Arctic to live mm-hmm. in negative 40 degrees with the Navy and polar bears. And you had a rougher trip than I did. <laughs> just by yeah, missing pretty the much. Flight. Oh, it was just, I mean, I really wanted to go. And I know you did. But, uh, and, and you could, you, Martin, our director, Martin Wood, was, was, uh, was trying to reach me, but my cell phone was just ringing in the luggage, which showed up two days later. It was great. Well, at least you got your stuff back. You know, yeah, I did. I did. I did. There's, I did. there's the silver lining. You, you, you got your things back. But I, I mean, I, I remember looking at the dailies and just going, oh, my God, that looks cold. It was pretty well, cold, huh? Yeah. My, my favorite of the dailies, which I don't know whether they actually managed to get the shot or got it accidentally. Amanda and I, we had to do this long walk and talk out on the Arctic ice, right? I remember. And we've been given all the brief, like, okay, well, there's leads on the ice. And if you go through the ice, but wait, we, we, if we go through the ice? Yeah, well, you know, and also – be careful about the polar bears because outside the perimeter, you want to be armed. And, and everywhere we went, we had snowmobiles and they would, you know, someone had weapons with them because of the polar bears. And then I guess on the, one of our last days of filming, they go, okay, we're going to do the, uh, we're going to do the long walk and talk with the helicopter shot. I remember that. And uh, they take Amanda and I out on the ice way out in the middle of nowhere. And they go, okay, so uh, we're going to walk from here to there. And then the guy and they hand us a they hand us a walkie-talkie, and the guy in the in the in, on the, uh, the the snowmobile disappears, and there's a man and I standing out on the ice with not a human being in sight, right? And at the top of the, the world, helicopter and the helicopter disappears way out somewhere beyond view, right? But and and we're like, this is ridiculous. We're out here with the bears on the ice. Who knows what's going to happen? And we're supposed to walk this way when they give us the cue. And we, we, so we hear this chatter and we hear, okay, rolling and uh, action. And Amanda and I both dropped to the ground. <laughs> we, both, we both dropped to the ground and start doing snow angels on the ice. <laughs> and we hear the walkie talkie going, we can't see him, we can't see him. And the helicopter comes right over the top of Amanda and I while we're while we're doing snow angels on the ice in the arctic with the polar bears and we're just giggling like school children like where are you guys and then finally <laughs> goes oh, okay we'll do it right the next time it was awesome it was a great but the whole thing the whole event you know beyond the fact that the navy took us up there and we got to bunk in and felt like we belonged there it's a massive bonding experience. It's an incredible, it's just an incredible physical experience to be there in that, in that environment. And that was, the, was that the first time you met Richard Dean Anderson? RDA came. Yeah. I was, I bunked with RDA. I mean, even just bunking in a plywood shed with, with Richard Dean Anderson is an experience because at three o'clock in the morning, that's when Rick decided to read the script for the first time or, or, or at least <laughs> learn his lines. So I'm in with, we've got the, uh, Commander of the base, we've got a we've got an intel officer who's doing uh, satellite stuff that he can't talk about. Right? right. There's a couple of stories there. And and we got Martin, uh, one other guy and me. And at three o'clock in the morning, there's only one light in this plywood box. And it's like right over my bunk. I'm top bunking it. And at three thirty in the morning, click the light goes on and it's Rick. And Rick is sitting there with the script, going over the script at 3, 3.30 in the morning. I'm thinking, 
everybody's trying to sleep. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> so then Rick leaves his script on the counter, right? Right. Uh, there's like a little counter space that's that wide in the bunk, which is, serves as a desk for the for the people doing real work. But Rick left his script there, and it was you know Stargate Continuum, and below it it said Top Secret, right? Right. The Intel guy sees the top secret and realizes there's civilians in the in the thing and i see him come in and he i see him grab the script and stick it under the pillow of his bunk ah. <laughs> and i go i think that's rick's and he goes what what and, he, and then he pulls it out and goes Ow! <laughs> so he thought he, he thought somebody left a top secret document out where civilians would get, put eyes on it so he was you know he was no longer in a secure area and there was top secret documents laying around and it was a continuum script. <laughs> That's funny. Well, it was, it was top secret because we didn't want the details of the script to get out, but, uh, but that, that was pretty funny. We yeah, shot those scenes long before we shot the rest of the movie. Yes. Well, it, uh, yeah, about a month and a half, two months. Yeah. Well, that's a long time in, 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 in our world. And, and, uh, so for the longest time, that's that was Stargate Continuum. That, those scenes. There was some amazing stuff in that. I, like the day I walked into the soundstage, and there was an entire boat on the soundstage, and the soundstage was refrigerated. Gimbal's boat. Oh my gosh! I'm like, I'm in a real movie now. I'm a real man now. <laughs> <laughs> no, we had fun with that. We we built a giant ship, and and not only that, we gimbaled gimbaled the cargo hold so so that when it tipped. It was that, you know, actually you were tipping. It was so much yes. fun. It was an entire, well, it was half of an entire freighter yeah. on a gimbal in a frozen soundstage. That yeah. was insane. Yeah. We, it was a movie. I mean, we, we, we pulled out the stops to a certain extent uh, as much as we could. I mean, it's still nothing compared to, uh, you know, what the big action movies do, but it was pretty cool. And you know that and a, and a billion dollar submarine prop was was pretty cool too. You know, we it was a that was a real sub coming through the ice. Yeah, it was. And uh, that was a real sub. That was real ice, and those were real polar bears that you didn't see waiting. To you didn't you didn't see them either, did you? You never saw I, one. I don't know. I don't know what they'd seen them the earlier in the season, but we had. I don't know that any of our crew saw them. But believe me, when you went out at night to go to the bathroom, all you're doing is. You would be scanning the horizon looking for two two little glowing spots because the only thing you could see would be the eyes of the polar bear. Right. The ice is white and the polar bears. They're white. white. Yeah. Yeah. And then you'd be scanning and then you stop and you look up and the northern lights are kind of all around you. It was it was stunning, bro. It was insane. It, you know what? I, I could kick myself that that I didn't make it. But like I said at the time, the important thing was we got the film and, you know, it looked great. It's, it, it was real. And what kills well, me I mean, is we, we did isn't it. That where, isn't that where your new script picks up? Just, you know? <laughs> no. <laughs> Mitchell, and, no. <laughs> Mitchell and Carter stranded on the ice. <laughs> but Brad's like, I've got a plan. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, that's, I mean, it was Mitchell and, and Carter and O'Neill finding them. That was the, the fun part. Yeah. He, he was like uh, just, just Colonel O'Neill. He didn't know anything about you guys. That was fun too. God, I enjoyed doing that. And then we got to do the, uh, then we got to screen it on the deck of a carrier. Was it Midway? It's the Midway. Midway. And yeah. So, yeah. 
we screened it on the deck of the carrier midway in San Diego at Comic-Con and, and it was, it was a giant chunk of fun. We had such a good time. Yeah. The, 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 the air force and the Navy have been very, very good to us. They have. And I, and I, and I would, uh, I would call them up again uh, if we got another opportunity and uh, because it was good for them. I mean, they, well, they look, obviously it, it's exceeded in your family for God's sakes. Well, no, here's the thing. You say, look, we've already given you one F-22 Raptor pilot. If you need another good one, you know, <laughs> you know, they're has got some kids on the way. They're happy to cross commission and, you know, go. You're yeah, we're Canadian. Unfortunately, you know, Canadians, uh, you know, we don't have, uh, we don't have the same level of equipment. We have, uh, uh, we have some F-18s. We have some F-18s. My, uh, my, my son's lead instructor uh, in the T-38 through UPT, undergraduate pilot training at INJEP, Euro-NATO Georgia pilot training, uh, was a Canadian. Oh, was he? Was it Shepard Air Force Base? It was a Shepard Air Force Base. Uh, he was call sign porcelain, uh, F-A-18 driver. Um, so that was, that was, that was the guy responsible for, for cracking the whip on, uh, on my boy. You know, Martin and I got to fly uh, T-38s out of Shepard uh, I, I, before. I, I know. Martin, yeah, I, I know. Martin sent me a picture of that. I was like. It was pretty oh. cool. Yeah. We should talk was... about more than planes at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna, let's talk about spaceships now. Uh, no, no. Here's know. a question. Well, I, I, okay. Let's do that. Are you, are you as much of a nerd as I am with, uh, with NASA and with, uh, like, I mean, I can't, I can't. I stop everything to watch a rocket launch, whether it's a Falcon nine or a, or anything that goes up I, in the sky. I, uh, I listened to the last Mars landing on live on clubhouse right? <laughs> because I was in an airport and I couldn't actually watch it. So I actually listened to it, which is, that's a high level of geek though. When you okay, listen to it land. <laughs> well, it was pretty cool. I, I, I was, I was riveted and, and what the accomplishment was, and then the the video that we saw later of, of the of the whole hovering and dropping it, and then the the oh my god! I mean that that's so incredible. Yeah, I'm a huge space geek. I, but that, I I, maybe within our lifetimes, I think maybe within our lifetimes, uh, there'll be people living there. You know, I, that's I'm, a that's a that's a big ask, but. It is the fact that if you look at our lifetimes and and the way the world is and the things we have and what mankind has accomplished in our lifetimes. Yeah. I, who knows what's next? We're either going to be living on Mars or living in the simulacrum. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, Musk is talking about Neuralink, right? I know. I know. That's not, that's, that's the next step into everybody living in a, in a virual economy. There's, I, 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 I've written you know, about I thought this we were going to have flying cars, but instead we're probably going to get the simulacrum before we actually have flying cars. Possibly. I, 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 uh, I've written a couple of things on this uh, pilot and, and travelers. I don't know if you saw travelers. It was my last, it was my Netflix show. Uh, if you haven't, you should watch it, Ben. I did. I, I, I've, seen, I, I've seen a bit of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay what's the rest? I didn't do like the whole eight seasons like I did with SG1. Well, that killed me. That killed me. That that uh, I remember that Robert and I talking to you on the phone, and and you saying, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna start watching them all. And we said, I no, it started with, let me provide you a list of shows that I think, and I I just wanted to, 
I just wanted it to be, you know, a, a list of good episodes so that you would, you know, want to do the show. And uh, you were already committed, I think, at that point. But you said, no, I want to I want to see everything warts and all. Warts and all was the uh, phrase you yeah. used. And, and you saw the warts and all. And you did. Yeah. And then you could reference. And then you, you call this on our own shit. I remember, too, when we were doing an episode. And you said, wait a minute. In season three. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, stop it. You, you can't call us on our own shit. We're, we're forgetting about that. We, we, we yeah, want to yeah, yeah. move past all that. Well, that's true. You were uh, unbelievable. That was almost 200 hours of television. No, I guess less than that, about 150. No, it was, uh, it was Could, like 180. Was it? 180 hours, almost. And you feel every one of them. No, I I literally did it in a, I did it in a binge. Literally like people watch series now. I. I watched, I think I watched the whole thing in two and a half weeks, Wow, uh, which is crazy. But um, I obviously I liked it or I, I might have not, you know, I might have not made it to the end. And and the thing is, is that I would see, you know, the, the advantage of me is I have fresh eyes on it, whereas you live right. it anytime right. you're in the middle of something, you know, you sometimes if I'm working on something, I, all I remember, I remember thinking, oh, this happened, but that was only in the first draft. Right. Or that there are things that um, that I remember about something that never made the cut. Uh, so I was seeing it sort of as it was uh, right. and seeing it fresh so that if I wanted to reference something from season three that you would prefer to have forgotten. <laughs> then the audience would go, yes, he did read the files. Do you know well, what I mean? No, I do. I do. Because I mean, it was, was relatively cool. You guys go, he read all the files and everybody looking like he's insane. He read the files. <laughs> and then there were the fake files that, that or the files that, that Mitchell was denied, you know? So there was, yeah. It, it, it's whatever provides an opportunity to tell a better, more nuanced story I'm in favor of. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was, I was uh, running off doing uh, that other show uh atlantis uh but we were all in one story room uh so it was very it was very strange uh trying to do two shows at once out of the same studio uh at the same time uh and uh and so we were as a writer's room we would sit in a a group and and go through a script talking about first drafts and second drafts and i would get confused i would literally say i I remember at one point I, i said uh wait a minute, what is Taylor doing in this? And, and Paul gently touched my shoulder and said, Taylor's in the other show. <laughs> I was like, right. I, I was testing you. I, it was just exhausting. It was exhausting. Brad, I don't, I, I don't think that, that, that most of the, the, the people listening to this or, or even most of the people who work on a show understand how gargantuan a showrunner's job is. That's true. Um, I, I and, you know, I'm not, I'm, well, I am. I'm going to blow smoke up your ass right now. <laughs> the fact that you were running two shows at one time, successfully running two shows at one time of high quality uh, that were also in the same, the, the, the same, the, in the same canon. Bro, you, that, that's mind boggling. It's mind boggling. Most people, and doing 22 episodes a year, I see. And I know people who have done trying to do 12 shows, one show at a time for a whole year who struggle, really talented people 
who struggle to get even that done. And, and I, that workload, that workload is unimaginable. Um, and well, in, 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 deeply, in reality, in, in reality, Rob Cooper did. did oh, I know. Uh, and well, look, Rob, Rob, you had to have Rob, but even showrunners have, you know, most showrunners have their Rob. They have their, you know, their, their exact co-exec producer. They have, they have that right hand man. They have all that. But the fact that you were doing two of those and keeping everything running, because a showrunner's job is not just writing, it's not just producing, it's not just uh, dealing with personalities, it's not just dealing with the network. It, it's a synthesis job where you're dealing with all of these personality, all of these politics, all of this story. None of us do it alone, right? And there's no That's way, definitely there's no true. way you're doing it alone. You had a great team, you know. And, you know, John Lennon grew up in the system. You had, you know, you had you had Martin Woods. You, Andy. you had our, our other directors that that could help you along, and you, you know, we you had your core writing staff, and you had Rob. But still, the the the, the amount of admiration that I have for your ability to continue to be upright and breathing at the end of that process. <laughs> Uh, you, you have, you know, you have to understand. So anytime I made your job difficult, it, it wasn't because I, I, I didn't care. It's because I did care. And I, and I wanted to see you in the ground. I, I, I wanted, I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to be, I wanted to be over your tombstone. Yes. I'm the final nail. In the <laughs> I, you never once made my life difficult. And in fact, every time I went to set, it was fun uh, and a joy to, and every time you had a question, it was a smart one. Um, but, but, you know, Rob was the showrunner. We were, what happened was ostensibly Rob ran, uh, SG1 and I ran Atlantis, but we both did both. And, 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 um, and, you know, you, I, I credit, I credit the team. You have to credit the team. And at the end of the day, Paul and Joe and, and Carl and Martin and, and Rob and I, just just came up kept coming up with stories and, and and shooting them 40 hours is a lot of tv in one year i can't imagine it now I can, i'm old now but i can't even imagine it uh with uh i mean a season isn't even 20 episodes long anymore unless you're uh on, on some networks and and i i gotta tell you i like 10 episodes if if, if uh, it's you can really concentrate on 10 episodes it feels like a breeze I think it's a good size. I think it's a good size model. It's a, you know, there's a good arc in there. You're not trying to, you're not trying to create, you know, really in a, in the 20 episode season, you're kind of creating two arcs because you're getting to your mid season with that and then resetting. So you're almost doing two seasons in one when you're doing 20 most of the time. Uh, right. You know, so it's you're like, right. hey, we have this right. arc and it gets up to our mid season, which is episode nine, 10 or 11. Right. Absolutely. Um, and you can, you can see that pattern. Uh, in the latter two seasons of Stargate where we arced out to that big mid season. And then we, yeah. we reset and get to the end of the season, which then would let, leave us hanging for the next season. So that was actually almost born out of the need uh, uh, to, because we had a long post-production process uh, of all the visual effects had to be done and, and we had lead time, but there came a crunch and, and, and because sci-fi never wanted to preempt, the only solution, and, and I remember saying this, why don't we just do 10 and, instead of trying to do 12 and then taking a break, we'll, and we'll do 10 and 10. And that ended up becoming the model. It was literally driven by the inability to finish episodes in time. 
because you know you do a gigantic, especially our mid-season ones. But we did some big shit with visual effects uh, yeah. in both shows. I, I can you imagine what, what I mean? I the one the one reason I'd love to do more is is knowing what what we could do, what's available to do, what what you can do now on a television budget, even in visual effects. Well, in that world, the 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 new LCD screens, the stuff that I know. Have you worked with one? The, the, these these you know backgrounds where you oh can yeah shoot yeah in real real space in real time with amazing backgrounds opens up the palette for different worlds. For, so for something like Stargate, which is a planet based adventure experience, right? The fact that you don't have to physically find a location which is not available in Vancouver to do something, you can do it on a sound. Well, they're not a lot of these some of the and some of these spaces are not physically available anywhere in the world. The fact yeah. that your imagination could now go even further than it than it was as constrained by the physical locations for a Stargate series. Yeah. Bruh. Bruh. Yeah. Bruh. <laughs> like that now. No, but can you imagine too, it's for the actors too, for to, to be able to perform in an environment that already looks like the place you're supposed to be imagining. Yeah. You know, I mean, and to the, actually. And, and these screens are doing interactive lighting. So yeah. you're, you know, the things that you don't have to do in post. I mean, yeah, there's, a, there's a bigger sort of lead time and more build time in advance. But the fact of the matter is, is that from a world building perspective, it's a huge advantage. And, you know, so, and you can up your, you can up your creep, creature shop game a little bit. So you can spend a little more money there doing, you know, the interactive with the aliens, you know, you do, you do, you know, Thor next gen, next gen sort of stuff. I, I, I've been watching it. I've been watching it going, wow. I, if we had this technology 20 years ago, oh, the worlds we would have seen. Oh, exactly. I mean, and, and using that as, as a, you know, I mean, think of Farscape. Mm. Think of what, think of, of, I mean, that was a pretty wild environment with a lot of puppetry. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine how different that would have been? It, it would have, it, the, the, the world stuff could have been wilder. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, the puppet stuff was always going to be wild, right? But we, we yeah. had, we were constrained by location. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we didn't even have the range of locations that, that uh, British Columbia has really. We had a little more tropical, a little more beachy, but uh, it, you know it was hard. We were in the middle of of, of Sydney, uh, you know, and so doing anything crazy, you know, the wood, the, the giant woods weren't right there. The mountains weren't right there. BC has a great thing because it has the mountains there. It has, it has the, that little flat area that you know down south. Yeah, but it's grown so much, Ben. It's grown so much uh, that that the zone that we're, you know, is, is now it's been built on all the places that we used to shoot like Stokes pit. They're gone. Those are oh, all God. buildings. Yeah. So, so we need to move. And, and it was actually even happening. Remember the village that we built in the effects stage. I mean, we built yeah. a giant village and then tried to share it between the two shows. That was the biggest arguments Robert and I ever had. I need it for this episode. No, I need it for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so who won? Well, generally Rob did. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's just because Rob is meaner than you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll get mean if I'm defending my people. 
like if I'm defending a writer or a, an actor or a director's decision. And it's like, because we were in a, you know, it was 11 o'clock at night. We were on our second hour of overtime. And that's why we did that. You know, decisions yeah. like that, I, I get angry at, uh, I, I get defensive of people and their, you know, decisions they made. And then you live with it. You, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer that because you know what, Ben, as a writer, it's never, it's never what you had in your head when you were typing it. It's something new. And if you're lucky and if you're doing your job right as a showrunner, it's something better. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, when you see the scene in dailies or when you see the cut together, you go, wow, that's better than I thought it was going to be. Or that's not what I had in mind. It's better. And I think that is why I'm a television producer, writer, and not a, not a novelist. Because I love, I love when you or another actor gives a line reading that I never even expected, but I like it better. I think it's great. It's 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 got to be, um, but it's got to be frustrating sometimes when when we don't improve it. Because there's times. I mean, honestly, you know, of course, we had a discussion. We had a discussion once about a line, and you went, "Did you not like the line?" And I went, "No, I just didn't. I couldn't figure it out." on that at that moment uh, and that happens you know it's yeah it's, you know because if i had had a problem with it in advance i would have said hey uh you know brett it, you know assuming there was time and and assuming that you know that, that i knew what i was gonna gonna have a problem with that's the that's when i i talk with tv writers and sometimes they say well you know if the actor has a problem they have to bring it to me 24 hours in advance otherwise it's comma perfect Full stop, oh, perfect that's, capitalization, that's and and I, when they say that, I say, I want to say to them, well, you say that, but that means you don't really understand the process, right? Which occurs on a set, or which can occur on a set, which is going to give you more than you think. If you get the right people in place, you get. All right, so I'm I'm going to shine on about uh, about my other cast members for a minute on SG. Sure. So we would we, every time we did one of these, ta- you know, table scenes, um, you know, up above the gate room and we're it's a big exposition scene, you know, and there's all of us there. There's, you know, there's Bo's there. Mike's there. Chris is there. Amanda's there. Claudia is there and, and maybe somebody else. And I'm watching what's going on around the table. Right. And you have to you have to get to the meat of the story. Right. So we're going to be here, there. We're going to be there. But I would look around the table and watch the reactions that were that were naturally flowing from that group of people mm-hmm. and realizing you could cut this entire scene without ever seeing who was talking and realizing how much cool footage, how much depth there is here in 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 this group. And you could tell an amazing story basically just with the reactions. Just with the work that was there, you could cut to anybody at any time. And you should. I mean, in editing, you do. You, you, the reactions are, are as important, which is something young actors never understand. It takes time to, to, to get them to figure out. And yeah. something people like yourself, leads understand implicitly that's the whole scene. It's not just the, I mean, sometimes you could, you could not even have a bloody line and it's still your reaction is the most important thing. The, it, you know depending I mean? on how it's playing out dramatically or comedically, uh, it, it, it could literally be a scene where you don't have a single line. And it's really all about the story is all about, you know, 
uh, Amanda's reaction to something and you could play it almost entirely on that. And, and that's the that's the thing that sometimes people don't understand when they see it on the page or or they see it in their heads and then put it on a page is they don't they haven't quite connected the fact that their work is is the blueprint and it's it can be so much better. It can be worse. Actors can make it worse. Directors can make it worse. That is absolutely true. Um, but if you've got a good team, yes, you're going to elevate it. If you yeah, if you've got a good if team, you've got you're a good team. Right. You you you. I think you you're better off trusting that process. And and I understand when people are doing 22 episodes a year or more or, or even 10. You know, they've spent so much time with it in their heads and they want it to be. They want it to be what's in their head. I understand that because it's a lot. You know what? The other thing is it takes a little time to find the rhythm of an actor. I mean, um, yes, like in a pilot, in a pilot, you're both, both the writer and the, and the director and the, the uh, performer are all just saying, well, let's see what this feels like. But after several episodes, pardon me, after several episodes in television, uh, when you get a when you get an actor feeling comfortable in the skin of the character, if you're listening, any preconceived notions you had of what that actor's voice was are gone, and it's now it's now Mitchell is now Ben Brock, you know. And so uh, I hear your voice, and I, and you type with 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 your voice, and and that makes all the difference in the world because that gets you closer. That gets that's the, the teamwork is 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 in that respect too, and the director knows mm-hmm. the character because he's done the show or she's done the show a couple of times or three times or dozens of times <laughs> knows what the reaction should be. But the best example, going back to your reactions thing, I can think of in, 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 uh, uh, in, in scenes, uh, in a scene specifically is in the hangar scene with Bo in continual, which he basically has a six page monologue going around the table. And yeah. it, is, it was all about your reactions and your reaction to his chastising you for you know, his line, and I remember digging out that take and finding it. The arrogance of what you're asking us to do is mind-boggling. Was his line, and and then we cut to each and every one of you, and Mitchell's going, "Shit, he's right." You know, you're humbled by that accusation. We're trying to save our reality, but mm. yours is fine right now. What the hell? This is arrogant. It's yeah, and 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 there's there's fun in that. There's a, a ton of fun in, in all of that. Um, and, and you had half the work to do in terms of line memorization, but every bit as much as work to do in terms of acting in the scene and responding yeah. to him. Well, I, I, every scene is, every scene you should bring your A game. You know, you're, you're there to service the story. It, whether you have one line or a thousand lines, you know, the, the thousand lines is just a lot of prep and. Yeah. You know, okay. Let me, let me, you know, work this, work this, work this, but. If you're if you're standing there on the day, you better be you better be working. You better be engaged ever, in the process. This happened if, to me. If you're, if you're not, if you're not, if you're with a good cast, your lunch is going to be eaten. Yeah. And if true. you're not, and in your and your reactions are important to the story, then you have you have fucked the story. You have yeah. fucked the writers. You have fucked everybody by not showing up and bringing your A game. And that's, I'm not saying that I've ever seen it happen. (laughs) 
or hey, I can't be, you know, they're literally, they're thinking about their laundry, right? I'm not saying that I've ever seen that happen, but I've heard <laughs> that it happens, right? I, I just, I, I'm just, I have way too much respect or try to have a proper amount of respect for the story, the audience, the writers, the the crew people who are working longer hours, and for the for the profession that that I'm supposed to be involved in. You know, acting is an ancient profession. It's probably the second oldest profession, right? The only reason we're even able to do what we do is is because somewhere back in the midst of time, they fed somebody who was telling a story around a fire. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that it's like we were useless but essential to humanity because the story around the fire is what binds a community. Uh, good narrative is what binds community, elevates and inspires. Hopefully, hopefully we're less aspirational and more inspirational, you know, that, you know, instead of trying to tell people what they should do, let's inspire people to do good things. Right. Yeah. But, but a a well-told, well-told story binds the the world and, and community together so if you don't if you don't have any respect for for the process and don't have respect for the craft, then I think you're doing a disservice. You should you shouldn't even be there. I totally agree, hundred uh, percent agree. And 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 there's nothing there's nothing better than when it works. Yeah, there's nothing better than 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 you know. Uh, and and you feel it. I, I, this has ever happened to you as an actor. Uh, uh, you, you you are so in awe of somebody else's performance that you forget what you're doing, and and uh, not forget what you're doing, but you're just like, oh my god, like when like because it happens to me uh, by the monitors when I'm watching a scene and, and somebody just blows it out of the water and, and like just is so in their character and they're so great, and 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 you can see the you can see the the, the crew leaning in. They're not bored. Mm-hmm. They're not looking at their phones. They're not, they're leaning in to a great performance. Yes. And it always struck me as amazing that the, the actors in those scenes, you know, and, so, and I'm sure sometimes it's been you giving that performance and everybody and, and people are enthralled. It's, it's hard to, uh, it's it, in the root, the same thing happens in comedy when somebody is so funny that the crew laughs out loud and you have to cut, <laughs> you know, it's like that was too funny. <laughs> Get used to it. You can't laugh, people. Let's go again. It's very funny. Yeah, absolutely. Those 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 moments happen, and sometimes you know, look, those moments happen at all kinds of stages. I've had those moments where I'm where I'll read a script and I'm laugh, laughing out loud, or I'm crying. Yeah. And then and then yeah, you know, so it happens. It happens at multiple points, and you know, and then. It, it, it could happen on the day that I'm laughing out loud or I'm crying or I'm transported by what's happening in the scene. Hopefully a lot of days that happens where you're transported and then in the cut and, and, and then in the final, when the music is added, you know, it's a, at, at multiple levels. I mean, even from the inception of an idea, you know how when you have an idea and you have a pitch and you get really excited by it and your mind starts expanding you're thinking yeah and it's this and it's this and all oh, this character and this and and it's moving around in your head before it even before it even hits the page and you'll you'll spend hours hours and you'll have walked around the house and you'll have had three conversations with your kids and your wife and you won't remember because in your brain 
you're living in this world, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a my wife will say to me, it's a transcendent experience. Storytelling can be and should be, and it's exciting to see it happen here, 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 all the way down the line. And yes, sometimes people back. I'm going to circle it back in the classic White House fashion to circling it back. It's hard sometimes for people that are working in an office a thousand miles away to hold on to the fact that this is a transcendent activity when it's really great. And that sometimes on the day it's going to be great. And sometimes it's just, we're going to have to get the day done because we ran out of light and we ran out of time and the puppet broke. Yeah. Or, or, or the room, I, I know you wrote a great walk and talk, but the, the corridor is only 15 feet long. So, yes. uh, you know, it, that's the other advantage of being a showrunner uh, on the same, you know, on the same lot. I mean, that's, I've never, I've never been a showrunner remotely. I, I wouldn't even know how to do it. I, I had conversations uh, after Stargate with people in LA and, and talking about shooting shows in, in, in Vancouver, but they would, you know, I, as executive producer, I would, I would be in LA and I, what <laughs> it makes no sense to me. I, how do you, you know, how do you go on the, on the stage? How do you watch blocking? How do I mean, I, you can cure, you can make a day work just by picking up something that goes wrong and blocking in the morning. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh. If somebody misses something and you go, well, no, 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 that's not what I meant at all. And it's your fault perhaps as the writer. And, and the actor will go, oh, my God, I completely misinterpreted that. And so will the director and, and you move on. Uh, but if you're not there, I, you know, the proof of that ends up in dailies, you know, and. Uh, yeah, well, and if, you've got a, if you've got a capable bunch on set, if you've got capable actors and a solid and a great director. And then look, man, when we're shooting, when we're shooting the second scene of the day, by the time we're on the last couple of shots, I like to go to the next scene if it's available and start blocking, blocking it before yeah. you get there. Right. So, because, because quite often in the blocking, you're going to find where there is a, a, a physical impediment or problem with the scene. Right. You know, the, so if you have the, if you have the soundstage, right. You, you can know in your head, Brad, right, that, okay, I'm doing this scene, but actually I'm going to start in Landry's office because that'll be just around the corner. I've got the glass. I know that this can carry. And, and then I've, I've, I've made the scene work dramatically because this part was private and this part is public and I can do it all in one. That's knowing the, the physical space. Or you, can, you could literally go and do your walk and talk in your head with the script or your writing and go... I'm going to run out of corridor here. So I need this scene to be shorter. Otherwise I'm going to have a problem. that's going to look static on the day. Um, it's a great advantage. It's a great advantage for a writer to be, to have the physical space at hand, not just in their head. It's true. I remember Joel, uh, this is completely unrelated, but it made me think of it uh, during continuum while you were walking across the ice. Uh, musically, he needed another four seconds like for the music that he'd yeah. written. Can, can you add four seconds? I know this is weird. I, I, I've never asked any a, a producer to change the cut before for a piece of music, but listen, Matt and they played it for me. And I went, Joel, of course, absolutely. Of course, uh, you know, it, 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 and, and we just changed it. And that, of course we had to open up the cut and it was a bit of a pain for post, but 
it made it better. Always make it better. It's a great rule, you know? So let me ask you a question. When, when in your, um, what phase in your development as a, as a storyteller, as a writer, as a showrunner, did you begin to really understand that sometimes you needed to allow for the extra four seconds? That when did you when did you begin to? I mean, because of the the things that you're talking about, they seem self evident after the fact, right? I mean, yeah. it, it, it seems self evident. You go, well, of course you would do that, but I don't think a lot of people who are starting or or a, a number of people in the industry actually understand that what you're talking about, which to me seems self evident, that. Well, of course, if the composer needs the extra four seconds and it works, then we're going to add the extra four seconds. I think a lot of them go, no, you need to adjust to what I have done. When did when did your brain open up to the to the truly collaborative nature of the process? It comes from uh, I think it comes from starting in the theater Uh, as a as an actor. I mean, I I was I was an actor for, you know, years. Uh, before I was, uh, and a playwright. I mean, I wrote some of the plays we were doing and I wrote, co-wrote a lot of the plays we did, but we were just like a little troupe uh, in my twenties in the theater and, and uh, where, where you have to, you have to uh, okay. make changes and the audience is telling you, you know, when you see, when you perform a play live 400 times and something isn't working, you change it, you know, when you. Hopefully when you, before the 339th well, performance. What I'm suggesting is it evolves and, and, yes. and it evolves sometimes very slowly. And that is the advantage of theater or workshopping in the theater. On the stage, you write something. You, you, you maybe do a read through. You do a blocking. The actors have all separately come with their own preconceptions of what the scene should be. And the first mm-hmm. blocking reveals a lot, right? It, it reveals, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of what. Uh, the writer's intention was what the director's intention is and what, you know, how the actors interpret the scene. And in that moment, in that moment between blocking and, and, and shooting, it has to congeal, you know, for the, you know, for take one, it has to, you know, you do a rehearsal and, and it has to, it has to become the shot. It has to become the scene. The, the, yes. the, the, the speed that that has to happen is mind-bogglingly fast compared to, you know, a, a, a theater workshop over number of episodes, number of performances. You, you got to get it right. Television and film versus theater. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, so, so what I'm saying is I understood the evolution in theater. So th- w- then when I, so when I get to a stage and I, I realize, okay, everybody's got to get on the same page pretty damn quick. Otherwise, and this has happened many, many times, it's probably happened on a lot of shows that, that you've done. That's why you end up shooting uh, at three o'clock in the morning after a 14 hour day, because at some point during a scene, people would just weren't on the same page, you know? And sometimes it's, sometimes it's the director digging his heels in over an angle. Sometimes it's the writer going, no, no, no. <laughs> sometimes it's the actor saying, well, I would never do that, <laughs> but, but you've got to get on the same page. And my, and my job is to help people get on the same page as soon as possible because only when they are can you really start to work. Only then can the magic really start to happen. You know what I mean? And I, that's what that's what a good cast can do. I I I, I agree with you a thousand percent. I I am just 
pleased to hear you say it the way you said it. Uh, I do think that sometimes that's the difficulty for for people in the industry that haven't traveled that that more ancient path coming through theater. It's not that theater makes you a good actor. It's not that theater makes you a good writer. What theater can teach you is to be a uh, a decent collaborator. Has to, yeah. That's yeah, the only way does, to, to make it's there it. And it's on the day. And also, you yeah. when you know you feel it from the audience immediately. Yeah. Immediately, you go, oh right, okay, that's not working. And you know, as a performer, you make adjustments on the fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a, as a writer, you'll, and giving notes, you're going to give the notes at the end of the performance and you might make an adjustment to the script. Uh, th- that's the typical path for production of theater for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, as opposed to here is the masterpiece. Now do it. Even Shakespeare, we see it trimmed and, and, yeah. you know, and, you know, bits out. do we really need the bear chasing, you know, yeah. chasing him off yeah. stage? <laughs> you know that you know exit exit pursued by a bear it's because they had a bear down at the bear pit and they went hey can i bring my bear along and then you know th- that line exit pursued by a bear that comes out of nowhere <laughs> that to me says pretty much everything everything that you need to know about what can go wrong in television <laughs> it's like <laughs> hey so we're doing this episode but we've got a bear how do we get it <laughs> I remember early Mitchell in my career, exit pursued by a bear. <laughs> I remember early in my career uh, on a show uh, that I was freelancing for. This is 1989, maybe, maybe 1990. Somebody was trying to write a bear into the, like they, they, they were trying to write a scene with a bear where the bear was doing things. And I said, guys, I'm pretty new at this, but I don't think you can tell a bear what to do. <laughs> I said, Sometimes it's just common sense, you know? I, uh, um, I, if we if we did have a bear though, I want Chris Judge to be the one exit pursued by a bear. You don't have to tell Chris to exit if there's a bear in the scene. He will he, just exit. He would exit pursued by a squirrel. The man yes, hates he would. anything that goes <laughs> that's non-domesticated that goes on four legs. I've never met a stronger looking man who is easy, more easily frightened by the slightest thing. Is fun funny. <laughs> well, I look, mean, the, the shot of him on that mountaintop, right? Yeah. The mountaintop did not scare him. What scared him was the idea that they left him there with the potential of a bear climbing to the top of a mountain to eat him. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. It's funny. But but just going back a bit, too, to something you said earlier, you're talking about uh, uh, saying, you know, vision and, 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 and visions changing. I, I try to teach... Uh, young producers especially when they go on set for the first time because uh you know that's the process right you're in the writer's room and that's like no 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 you, this is this is your episode you actually you should go and you should sit on on set for a while and watch it watch it happen watch it unfold and it's they were almost always wanting to speak up they're, they're almost always on every after every scene wanting to say something to the director, wanting mm. to whisper something to the director, and and I try to tell them the the hardest the, the hardest to learn skill and possibly the most important skill as a producer on set sitting beside the director is when to shut the fuck up because if you you know you it's you, it's not the way you had it in your head it's different watch it a few more times because this is the way it's going to be. 
This is the, this is the way the actors are learning the lines. This is the way the directors blocked it. You cannot, you know, don't try to change it. Just, just, just watch it and accept the fact that it's not the way you had it in your head. Good chances is going to be better. When do you draw the line and you sit and you say something? I can't even think of an example. Uh, 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 usually I've had a, a chat with the director, like they call it a tone meeting. I hate calling it a tone meeting. I call it a page turn, which I think is Andy Makita's term. Basically just sitting with the director and going through the script and saying, pointing out sometimes the obvious, you know, mm. and, it's, and sometimes you, you say something that you think is obvious, that the script is obvious and, and, and the director goes, Oh, Oh, I didn't, I didn't interpret it that way at all. Right. And, and you realize, you know, language is nuanced and, and sometimes, uh, sometimes something that is, you think is simple is quite complex because especially if a show has been on the air for a long time and the characters existed on screen for a long time. So, yeah, I do a, I do a meeting with the director, so that shouldn't happen, but it does. And, and yeah, uh, no, I, I, I think it happens all the time. You know, it's like my wife says, you need to pick up my dry cleaning. And, yeah. and I, I don't realize how important it is for me to pick that up because, oh, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this. That, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you just screwed up our entire vacation because you didn't pick up my dry cleaning. And it's, yeah. it's not that I was willful or obstinate. It's just that I didn't realize that this was important to do at this point because it happened da, 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 down the line. I, I, it, it's an interesting process because, the, you know, when you're in the middle of doing, doing the day, right? Yeah. You can quite easily as an actor or as a director go off after a shiny object, right? Yeah. But yeah, but that shiny object that you go after, which would be great, this would be awesome, has taken us away from the golden path that we need to be on. That's got to come back in Act Three or Four, and the ability, the ability to hold in your head uh, as an actor the necessities of the story, right? Which is why I, I always talk about servicing the story. Service, I'm servicing the story. I'm servicing the character. I'm servicing the story. Try to avoid servicing Ben Brown, right? Uh, yeah, and try to avoid servicing my ego, which is ample uh, at times. It varies, but it's to hold that. I, I, I think that's an important time, very important time. Like at that point, the writer has to say, "We've got to get this beat here, otherwise, I'm going to have to write it there, uh, yeah. and, and we'll have to get it in. Otherwise, yeah. this, the, otherwise, this is going to fall apart in Act Three. Right. Yeah. No, that's definitely true. And and, yeah, and and usually I don't have to say anything. Usually I'll just look at the director. And I don't know if you know this. Uh, I've said this to you before. I don't think and as a writer producer on set, even though I have a relationship with the actors, I think the actors should communicate with one person on the set. And that's the director. Yeah. And I should only jump in if, it, if it's a three way discussion with, between me, the actor and the director and chime in when I think it's necessary. But but that's, because, I, I, that's also because you you have you know you have Andy and or Martin and you know what do you do Amanda when you get now. a new director and you're you're unsure? It's scary. It's 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 a bit scary. And 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 sometimes they'll you know they'll they'll try to reinvent shit that that is against canon. Like no no no, a Stargate doesn't work that way. I know it would save you an hour of shooting if they just stepped back through. But a Star a Stargate is one way. Well, why does it have to be that way? 
because it is. <laughs> you know, that's where I draw the line. Stuff like that. If I you cannot had put this on film. the first 180 episodes. You would know this. <laughs> And exactly. One, that's exactly something that you I would say. Went, we, we can't do that because it doesn't yep. work that way. <laughs> you have said that. I know. And I, and I, I, I that, you got to love that. And that's what your, that's what your regular cast can do to, to go back to what you were saying earlier about it, Sometimes it's not what you had in mind and I have to step in quite often. It's a, it's like a guest character mm. who has decided I'm going to do this with a German accent. And you go, what? no, 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 we're, I don't know why you're doing that. Please stop doing that. And, uh, or uh, never, that's never happened, but uh, in terms of the German accent, but your leads, you, you should speak to at a regular basis and know, you know, like you often would come in to Rob's or my office and say, this scene, what the hell's going on with this scene or whatever, you know, and, and not what the hell's going on, but, but wanting to discuss a beat or two in a scene. And I think that's yeah. Bo, Bo Bridges, Every scene I wrote for him, he he had a question or a thought or and and wanted to, and did his homework and wanted to run changes that he had by me, which so so great. I mean, so he's he's the Bo, best. Bo is Bo's the Bo's a inspirationally um, thorough actor, and he knows oh. his craft inside out and backwards. He knows every damn trick in the book. Yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of wisdom and experience um, out of out of actors like Bo Bridges. Uh, it, 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 I I I soaked up as much as I could. I, I thought I thought I was fairly competent, and then I watched Bo, and I'm like, bro, that's that's some crafty, shifty stuff you're doing right there, man. And he's, yeah, he's and you it. and you see you see the you see the effect and the and the you, you go, oh my, it's in the efficiency. You know, the, the, he doesn't, yeah. he's just so damn good. And then every, we, our cast for Stargate across the board was amazing. I was, I couldn't be happier. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I still, I still think it's one of the smartest group of people. All of them, all of them are highly intelligent, frighteningly intelligent, and, you know, big personality sometimes. But you know, you see them. You see them outside of the confines of the set, and you're going, "No, they're really, they're really smart." Uh, yeah. No, absolutely. Like Mike, Amanda, Chris, yep. Claudia, Bo, the the core that I worked with, smart yep. people. Yeah, and and uh, Amanda has taken those skills behind the camera, and she's now a really, really good director. Oh, I I don't doubt it for a second. She's also wonderful with people. I yeah, she is. That. She gets she performances. Was, she was always the best. She was she was the best with people. You know, I I, I just say flat out front that Amanda was, um, Amanda was, obviously the most generous, caring, cohesive glue of uh, when I arrived at the team. It was she yeah. was she's just good to everybody, smart. Um, compassionate, a, a, a good human being. I'm not surprised that she has excelled as a director because she's smart as well and knew what she was doing. Yeah. Um, and and was paying attention happy. on the day, paying attention to the process, mm. you know, learning. You can learn as an actor to become a, a great director by watching, but because I mean, there's no better, you have to talk about front row seat. <laughs> You're on the stage. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think being an actor, uh, 
made uh, as limited and, and, and small as <laughs> my career was uh, and so long ago, I, I understand what it's like to put a mouth load of words in, your, in somebody's mouth and expect it to sing. You know, it, it, it's like I, when an actor wants to change something because I just can't get this, this speech out this way. Mm-hmm. I never go, oh, no, 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 no. That's what I wrote. I say, oh, okay, that makes sense. And it has more to do with just rhythm and, and, and of, the, of the character than anything else. Occasionally I'll, I'll go, no, that's not as strong as that's not as strong. And here's why. And, and the actor will go, oh, okay. Now I understand. But uh, oh, Amanda, I could, oh, good God, the stuff I gave that woman to say as Carter, oh, you know, Michael too. I mean, oh, uh, and Michael yeah, both, it, between the two of them. I, 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 and, and here's the thing, you know, so I show up really late in the day. I literally, I was like a party crasher, right? So I show up season nine and, and I, I look at Mike's script and he's still notating everything in his script after eight seasons, yeah. all of the techno babble and jargon and expositioning. And he's going through as a consummate professional marking up his script. And I, I, I looked at it and, 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 and felt, Oh, I, I feel inferior because I, <laughs> I, well, I have a slightly different process from Mike that um, now let's make it all about me right now. I discovered <laughs> it, a it is your point, podcast. I, I discovered at a certain point that if I had a decent idea, that I would remember it. And, but if I wrote stuff down, I would be doing my notes instead of, instead of reacting on the day. So th- that process of notating my script became an interference. So like the guy that showed up and decided he was in love with the girl and couldn't get it out of his head, that would have happened to me if I wrote down, I'm in love with her. And then I would yeah. threaded yeah. it through and it would have been hard for me to get rid of where is if I have it a blank page, I can shift and adjust quickly. But if I have a yeah. good idea, it tend it tended to stick with me. But if I forgot it when I went to shoot the thing, then it was wasn't good to begin with. But it's my- funny you say that. I'm that way as a writer. I'm not. I mean, my and I, and I all through my all through my university. I mean, I I, I it mustn't have been a very good idea because I forgot it. I've said that a hundred times. You know. Think of all the great ideas that you've left behind, my friend. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. If I have a really good idea, it, I, I obsess over it. So I, I know I'm not going to forget it. I, you know, I, especially if it's like an idea for a scene or, or you know, the beginning of a story, uh, you know, it could, you, I'll, I'll, I'll lay in bed at night thinking of it. And, and I, don't, I don't write it down. There's a great story, uh, Billy Wilder story. Uh, uh, he used to think... Uh, You'd have great ideas in the middle of the night, and uh, and and he'd wake up in the morning and forget them. So he put a notepad beside his bed, and Billy Wilder uh, was telling the story, and he, and he says, "And I woke up in the middle of the night, and I went, oh, 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 this is a great idea. This is a great idea." He took his pen and he and he wrote down a piece of page, piece of paper, and he and he fell back asleep, knowing that in the morning his great idea would be there. And he woke up in the morning, he saw that piece of paper, he remembered he had a great idea, and he looked at the paper and it said, "Boy meets girl." <laughs> meaning, meaning, 
there really are no great ideas. You just have to build on what you know. <laughs> this is a great idea. Mine would be, don't forget eggs and milk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I would be passionate. <laughs> that's the other side of the paper. That's that's what's there. That's what's I there. No, that's from, I've been bold. Like, I, I had this great idea in the middle of the night. Eggs and bacon and milk. <laughs> Are you, are you, uh, you've always been interested in doing uh, other things uh, beyond uh, acting or like, if you wanted to direct, if you, you, you I know you've written things. Uh, I, are you, uh, I, uh, I, I have written, uh, I'd like to get paid for writing. Um, yeah. It's, and it's hard work. <laughs> it <laughs> it's is really hard work. I mean, I've, I've written, I've written a few things since, um, since, since we last uh, saw each other in the flesh and I drove off into the early morning. Uh, I'm tooling around with ideas right now, but you know, it's, mm, I, I've, I've got a daughter who's a writer. She's writing her first network script. So oh, that's I great. watch her go through that process and talk to her about it from the other side. Both my daughters are, are uh, like to write as well. And uh, they're both teachers, but uh, they write on the, on the side. Well, they write, then, you know, uh, they need to, they need to follow, follow dad eventually. Um, I don't think either one of them are screenwriters. I think they're uh, uh, my youngest is uh, she's, she's written a novel and, and uh, my eldest wrote a novel a few years ago. It's just, uh, it's a different art form. It really is kind of a different art form. And uh, yeah. I, I can't really, maybe I'll write a novel one day. Uh, if people stop buying my work, maybe people have already stopped buying my work. Uh, <laughs> you never know, right? This business retires you. Um, right. I, I heard, heard a quote recently that I heard someone say uh, Hollywood is one of the few businesses you can be retired for 10 years and, and you, they didn't tell you. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> I'm, like, yeah. I'm kind of wondering if, if that's me. <laughs> well, you know what? You, you, are, you and I are cut from a similar cloth in that uh, uh, if I didn't have to, I'd be fine if I, if I didn't have to work anymore because I don't have a lavish too lavish of a lifestyle that it, uh, I need to keep it up. I can always, uh, uh, you know, our, our, uh, sometimes when our cars were parked side by side in the lot, you wouldn't, you definitely know, wouldn't know it was uh, the showrunner and the lead actor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Are you saying my, are you saying my Volkswagen Passat was, was not up to. It was the nicest there? Passat on the lot. I mean, it was, you know, it was all glittery and stuff. <laughs> it only had like one or two major dents in it. So it was pretty good. <laughs> I don't need for a lot of things, although, you know, at a certain point, I do have a need for, um, I have a need for exercising creatively. You know, I yeah. find, I find that I, I did, I did direct a, a film that, you know, someone asked me to do and I came in late on the project and I, the experience was one of those variable experiences where I literally was two weeks into the edit and they said, we need a locked picture. This is a movie, and I said, "What? We <laughs> mean lock picture? It's two weeks in an editing bay. This is the cheapest time ever." Uh, and, and it was um, so it was very frustrating. I, I would love to direct on episodic, um, so that I didn't have to do, you know, six months to a year in prep and six months to a year in post. Yeah, you know, um, I'm, I love dealing with actors and and people and episodic too is 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 good in the sense uh, when you're directing uh i i've 
often, as you know, I mean, uh, Amanda got her first directing assignment on Stargate. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and I, I've never, I've never had a, you can tell, you can tell when somebody has that instinct and you, you can say it's smart, but it's really just their awareness of what's going on on the stage as well during blocking and in rehearsal and in performance. They're, there's, yeah. they're, they're not thinking of just what's coming out of their mouth. They're thinking of the whole scene. And so anybody who can do that will probably be able to deliver a really good episode. And, there's you know, a, if you have a good DP. There's a combination of skills. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, the, there's the understanding of the story. There's the communication skills. There's the understanding of blocking in the camera and also the, the structures of the show. You're not going to do this shot because this is not what this show does unless it is what that show does. You know, there's a, yeah. there's usually a house style. Very few shows don't have a house style. And if they are, they're anthology shows, in which case yeah. then you can be a little, or, you know, a little bit of an auteur. Uh, but it, it, it is, uh, it's a wild ride sitting in the director's chair on a day. It is. It is. I don't, I, my problem with directing is that, and I've said this before, I will always be able to hire somebody better than me. And if my job is a showrunner to get a, um, to get the best version of a scene, I should, I should hire somebody better. Also, I don't have a driving passion to be a director in television the way like Rob did. Rob really wanted to direct. He wanted mm. to get into this business to direct. Um, for me, as a showrunner, if I want a shot, I say, I would like the shot, please, <laughs> you know, and I get the shot, you know, if there's a sequence that I, and they do it, it's not like, it's like I said once, to, uh, what is it about the title executive producer that you find inadequate? You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, and, and, and again, and the rest of it is so much of television is just once you get, you know, a director gets their, their moments, their beats, the things that they, they, for that day that they they think they can shine in this moment. But a lot of it is just making the day, you know, a lot of it's just hard, hard work. And it is so bloody time consuming. And as you know, you were talking about the, the job of a showrunner. I have to already be six other places. You can't do that when you're directing. You have to just direct. You know, my day yeah, as a showrunner is writer's room prep. You, you got too oh, big too early. You're too big. <laughs> you're too big for it. This is not big enough. I would no, be the person telling the people what to do. <laughs> no, that's really not it. I really, I really, uh, and, and like I said, the, the whole collaborative thing, it's, it's it, when you put multiple minds together, quite often the sum is, is greater. And it's, I mean, it's greater than the sum of the whole. And, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, maybe I, I haven't said no yet. You know, just like I might write a novel, maybe one day I will. There's a film that I wrote that everybody reads and, and everybody loves and nobody's made. And, you know, maybe down the road, uh, I might just go, I'm going to make this damn thing. It might be the only way I could get it made. Right. Uh, it's not that, it's not that big, but if it's the only way, maybe it's the only way. Yeah. They, the, the day may come where, you know, you decide you want to be, you know, you be, you want to put the paintbrush back in your own hand. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe we'll see. I don't, I'm not even sure I trust myself enough. <laughs> we'll see. Listen, you don't have a giant social media presence. And, and so uh, if any, I don't think you have any. No, but I, uh, have, I have zero social media presence. Right. Is, that, is that bad of me? 
No, not at all. But people, people, uh, when, when, uh, when the companion people on the companion found out, um, that we were going to be doing this podcast, uh, the companion opened up the world to questions for Ben Browder. Uh, and, uh, we don't have to do them all, but, uh, these are fan questions. Okay. Okay. And actually we, we recorded, we recorded some of them and Tommy from the companion has, has them ready to go. So I haven't, I don't know them either. So let's, uh, let's just hear some of them. We'll just go from the top. Tommy, go ahead. Let's do this. Brad is putting together a new Stargate franchise. Are you going to be involved in that? Would love to know that. Thanks. I can answer this question authoritatively. <laughs> Only Brad Wright knows the answer. Brad? <laughs> I don't even have the answer. If I have the intention. I'll say that. And Ben, you already know that. I, I uh, I've, I've, I've written the character Mitchell in a script, whether that sees the light of day or not. Um, uh, I have no idea. Uh, I would love it to happen and I hope it still does. Uh, and, uh, so the shorter answer is, and, and I think Ben would agree that if we could, uh, get some of the band or most of the band back together, that would be a good thing. What do you think? I, I would love to do that, Brad, but I think that's, but that's fairly apparent. And, you know, if that doesn't happen, then <clears throat> let's go make your movie. Okay, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Okay, run the other question, Tommy. Hi, Ben. My name is Jen. I've been a fan of Farscape since it was originally broadcast on TV. And I actually got the chance to meet you for the first time at the 20th anniversary party at the Jim Henson lot a couple of years ago. And it was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And I found I was completely starstruck and could not put two words together properly. I'm looking back on it. It's funny and kind of embarrassing, and I was just curious if you've ever found yourself in that situation, either with someone you've worked with or at an event where you met somebody you really admired, um, and if you had any thoughts on how the experience was different, depending on your perspective, if you were a fan or the person um, on the receiving end of that kind of an experience. Okay, Jen. Um, yes. First off, I, I thanks for coming to the 20th Farscape experience on the Henson lot. That was, that was a great night to see everybody and, and to see so many people that, that, uh, you know, love the show in the environment that spawned the show. Um, that has absolutely happened to me. I, I don't know when it's going to happen to me again, but I'll give you my one really good story about me being completely starstruck. I, uh, I went to a play when I was in drama school in London and uh, I, it was a, Burkoff production, doesn't matter what it was, but I sat down and two seats away from me on my right was Dustin Hoffman. Wow. And I, I'm looking at Dustin Hoffman and I'm thinking, he's an American. I'm an American. We're here to see the play. He's an actor. I'm an actor. I'm in drama school. So that, you know, English drama, that makes me an actor. So I, I kind of, you know, I get up a little bit of breath in my chest and I turn to Dustin Hoffman and I say, Mr. Hoffman, I, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman gets up out of his seat, goes and finds the management to get a different seat at, at the other end of the theater away from me. Oh, dear. And I managed to like, basically just spill word garbage all over myself right in front of Dustin Hoffman. 
Cut to two years later, uh, he's working with my wife in the West End. Uh, she's playing Jessica to his Shylock. <laughs> and uh, Oh, dear. And I, uh, I roll up as the, the spouse <laughs> to the backstage. And uh, I was like, yo, Dustin, what's up? <laughs> Please don't recognize me as the idiot that you ran away from in a theater two years ago. Uh, and I don't think he did. And then I ended up actually in the production as it when it transferred from the West End to Broadway. And I have several notorious stories about me arguing with Dustin Hoffman. Oh, that's and funny. As a as a basically a spear carrier, and I'm having an argument with Dustin Hoffman about a, a reblocking a scene late at night when we're in overtime. And everybody was pretty sure I was going to be fired, including my wife. And uh this went on for a couple of days where I was basically persona non grata. Everybody was like dead man walking when I went into the wings of the theater. And uh, I walked by Dustin's dressing room and he, he goes, Ben. And I'm like, oh, here it comes, getting fired. He waggles his finger at me, says, come in, come in. He closes the door in his dressing room and he goes, the other day, um, you okay with that? And I went, yeah, are you okay with that? And he went, yeah, when I was your age, I would have done the same thing. Keep doing that. Oh, good for him. Uh, yeah, really, you know, an interesting and sort of pivotal moment. So one, yeah, uh, I definitely had that moment. Two, Jen, the next time we meet, you're going to be fine, and you'll be arguing <laughs> with me about which scenes in Farscape <laughs> I sucked in. <laughs> oh, this is fun. Let's keep going, Tommy. Hello. Um, I'm curious uh, for the two episodes that you had written for Farscape, what was your inspiration for either one of those? And is that something you'd be interested in doing more of in the future for another series or any other type of writing or anything? I'd just be curious to know. Thank you. Okay, yeah. So the, the two episodes I wrote on Farscape, uh, of which every keystroke went through my fingers, uh, which is a rarity in, in, in television, uh, it is like every comma, every keystroke was mine. The uh, first episode I wrote, which was um, originally entitled Das Budong, where the ship gets swallowed by a giant space monster. The, the initial inspiration for it was uh, was 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 basically Das Boot and uh, the kind of submarine no. idea and Jonah <laughs> and the whale mashed together. Right. But the more critical element of it was where we needed to be in the story which was we had to put Crichton and Aaron together romantically at that point. And so what I did was I used, I used Othello uh, and jealousy as the driving template. So created a, which is why it ended up being called green eyed monster because the space monster had a green eyes. And I mean, it's a giant, you know, moon sized space monster called a budong that swallows the ship and swallows the smaller ship Talon. So I used Othello as, as, as a sort of template with Talon as Iago and, uh, and Crichton as, as Othello, but he doesn't, instead of killing Desdemona, they end up, you know, together. So I used, uh, I guess I used a lot of classical references for that one. The, the second episode I wrote, uh, which is uh, John Quixote, um, was basically... It, I was fascinated with video games at the time and also the reputation, which our team theoretically would have had in that, in that uh, era of space. So um, I created a, um, 
a neural linked video game where that the crew was in, which uh, was based around their reputations, but it was in a fantasy setting. And so I, I use the, it's more of a side mission, but it's kind of an exploration of the inside of Crichton's head and Crichton's paranoia about the fact that he is in love with Aaron. And if, if Scorpius ever figures out that as the key to Crichton's psyche and then he can be manipulated through, through his love of Aaron. So those are, those are the basic inspirations, but you know, they're, they're essentially both bottle shows, believe it or not. Both of them are bottle episodes. We used existing sets. We didn't get to build any sets, no new cast, all existing cast. And um, those constraints were great for me, but from a thematic standpoint, it was, um, advancing the, the Crichton Aaron relationship in season three. And then in season four with John Quixote, it was setting the stage for Crichton's major vulnerability, uh, which would then lead into later in the season arcs about how Scorpius and the peacekeepers are trying to manipulate Crichton to get the wormhole technology. That's the complicated answer. And well, that's the good answer. That's a great answer. And I will say there's one other thing that I did when I was, when I was crafting my episodes was that I would go to the production heads and say, what do you want to do that you haven't done? And the CG people said, we want to do a giant space monster. And we haven't done that. We want to do a live giant space monster. And I went, that works for me. That's great. And that, that becomes part of it. So then I get this amazing work out of the CG department at a discount rate that they are fully invested in. And then I talked in with John Quixote, there was elements in it where the actor said, I want to do this. And I went, great, I can use that. So I can, I get, I get a lot of creative buy-in and, and the creature shop as well. I got a lot of creative buy-in. So a lot of great production value out of people's desire to do something. That's my long explanation. All cool. All very cool. Hey, okay, Tommy, let's, uh, let's do one more. Let's do one more. This is fun. Hi, my name is Jacob, and I have a question for you, Ben. Um, when you went to go play on Stargate, was it weird going to Stargate and being on the same cast as Claudia Black as it was for Farscape? I'm just curious. <laughs> Jacob, uh, it, that's a, it, it's a good question. Um, and on the surface, you would think it would be difficult. But if you looked at Vala versus Aaron, there is no, it wasn't like I was working with Claudia Black. It was like working with completely different people. Yeah. Claudia is an immensely talented actress. So when I was playing Mitchell, believe it or not, it wasn't Ben Browder. It was Cameron Mitchell. You know, the constraints of and the constraints and liberties of being Cameron Mitchell are entirely different from being Ben Brad of the human being and, and Claudia created a character, which is so vastly different. If you had, there was, it was so completely different. It was like something entirely fresh. Uh, and, and that was, you know, what she had done. Cause she was on the show before I was, and I'd seen the episode and she was playing something entirely un Aaron, like, and, and Aaron, Aaron sort of had a, she, Claudia as an actress has a lot of comedic chops, but Aaron wasn't given a lot of comedy to do because of the nature of the character. Vala played to Claudia's strengths, and the, the writers did a great, great yeah, I'm gonna tap, tap to Brad and, and to, to Rob and, and you know, Malazzi and the, and the crew. They did, they did a great job. Vala was a great 
great flavor to add to to the the, the, the team. And uh, so it wasn't. And Claudia is a person we were, you know, we work together exceedingly well. We're friends. And that's it's always a joy to be working with friends. I'm just going to chime in on that one, too, because uh, when we were when we were talking about Claudia had been on the show and, and we were uh, as we were expanding the show uh, into seasons nine and ten and, and, and talking about, OK, well, we need to bring in another character. We need to we need to uh, change the the dynamic of the team. We were even considering rebranding the show Stargate Command at that point, um, but the continuation uh, was best. And and I remember Rob and I talking in his office about uh, was it going to be weird with with uh, with uh, Ben and Claudia having done the show a previous show, and it was I think Rob who said. First of all, why not? And, and secondly, Vala and Mitchell are, are vastly different characters. So, so, and boy, that was a good decision because uh, we had fun during that time. Yeah. Didn't we? I, yeah. And you know what was great from my standpoint is that, you know, as, as you go long running in a show, you know, you, sometimes you can lose sight of what the show is actually about. Yeah, and when I when I came on SG One, I remember very early on there was a description in in the pilot in in my pilot episode, the first episode of season nine, where the the, the discussion was in it was the it was the tag it was the, it was the cold open, not tag cold open. So it was the cold open, and it it the description was and the camera pushes in on Cameron Mitchell, and I had a discussion with Rob and a discussion with Andy McKee, who was directing the episode. I said let's not push in on my face. Let's push in towards me and then push past and focus on the gate because that's, I remember that. Show. And, you know, for me, that was, it, it was like, this is a, this is a really, and, and the fact that, that Andy was on board with it and Rob was on board with it. I felt really comfortable from that moment on to realize that look, this is not about, this show is not about even the individual characters alone. It's always about the gate. It's always about the adventure. It's always about the team. It's that big circle that the people walk through and the people walking through are a team. And this is why, this is why the military relates to it because it's all team-based. It's yep. a team-based tactic. This is why people relate to it because it's about the connections that individuals make and it's about the, the portal to adventure. And I, you know, from my standpoint, I was like, yes, I can be on this show. I couldn't have been on a show if it was the the, the Mitchell show or the you know or anything else. It was about the gate. It's Stargate, SG One. Those are the two things, and 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 um, that's really important. That was really important to me. I remember that moment. I remember the footage. I remember I remember you standing there in the threshold of the Stargate, and I think you reach out and touch it. I do that. Yeah, then, I, yeah I, I totally remember that moment. It, it was it was very cool and and a very great uh, welcome to the show moment. Really, it was it was perfect. It's important. It's important to know what story you're in, and and you know, to me, that was the story that that I that I was in. I was in I was in Stargate SG One. You know, and and that and it's about the Stargate and it's about SG One. I was, it was. I was really pleased. It was. One of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is so that I can catch up with people 
I haven't seen in a long time and yak for a long time. And, and we did that and it was great fun, Ben. Well, let's not wait another 14 years. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. Uh, hopefully, I know you're in hopefully. Canada and, and we're, we're still theoretically in some kind of COVID situation, but I am fully immunized and, uh, you know, have gun will travel. <laughs> I uh, have no gun and have my had my first uh, vaccination and already feel better for that. We're going to we're going to get on the other side of this and oh, yeah. hopefully we're going to get a chance to, to play again together. I, I would love to, Ben. It was really, uh, it really good be, to see you. It, it would be wonderful for me. Me too. Oh, Ben and I could have gone on for hours. I hope you enjoyed this interview, and you can find my essays and a hundred more stories like these on The Companion at www.thecompanion.app. Bye for now. Hi there. This is Chief Master Sergeant Walter Harriman, your favorite gatekeeper. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become a certified Stargate technician? Well, now you can find out, because I'm going to share my knowledge and experience with a select group of aspiring and enthusiastic gators. I want to give you a chance to be a hero too. That's why I'm happy to announce that on March 11th, I'll be taking a small number of students for my class, Gate Tech 101. Tickets are on sale now at thecompanion.app slash events. You won't want to miss this because it's not just a Stargate masterclass. It's a Stargate chief master sergeant class see you there but for now chevron 7 is locked